Hello, I'm Glyn Fussell and welcome to We Can Be Heroes. In this podcast, I get to know creative misfits, underdogs, wild rebels and those people who have stuck one giant middle finger up to society and live life their way. I can't wait to introduce you to some people who embody what it means to be absolute champions. So prepare yourself as we dive in and meet some amazing individuals who have inspired, stood up for change and say, I am here. Kadeev Komen, we've spent so much time hanging out. We have. Normally in nightclubs and basements <laughs> and places that you should not be seen. And we've talked about many things, but one thing we've never spoken about is how you are just a phenomenal actor. Stop it. How do you take that? I take that with both hands, like most things. But um... It's true, though. I just want to say that you've been in so many things and you always stand out to me in those roles. Oh, you always do. That's so nice of you to say. And we're talking, listen, Kitty, if we're talking, we're not talking some bit parts here and there. We're talking <laughs> some Whopper TV shows, Fleabag, Chewing Gum. Yes, this is your curriculum vitae. <laughs> Black Mirror, Slow Horses, which just been nominated for how many BAFTAs? Five BAFTAs. And what was the other show that you're- uh, This is going to hurt. Ne- Amazing. That's, so many BAFTAs. Yeah, so, so many BAFTAs. So in all these roles, though, I, there's one thing I've noticed, and it's a reoccurring thing that happens, I think, for lots of gay actors, but also lots of black actors, where you're always the accompanying piece. Mm. Always the side piece, never the main meal. Always the <laughs> Right. And, and, you know, I was thinking about that. And I think a great example and an easy way to notice that is you just go on any of the streaming platforms and you flick through the little small square that's in front of you mm. and you see a lot of white faces and yet here we are we think there's been all this change mm-hmm. do you see the change it's glacial i'll say that it's not the most um quick thing to be happening i mean i see changes in the fact that yeah there are more people that are diverse on screen and behind the camera but it's the diversity of stories that aren't being shown mm. because if you have a great diverse story, it will automatically give you a great diverse cast. So you won't be a side piece. You'd be the lead and the forefront, you know, but they're constantly refuse to commission diverse stories. So they try to put diversities in the stories that they already have. Exactly. Meaning you're always going to be downstairs, not upstairs. You know, so it's a white, it's a white lens. It's a white story. It's a white piece of history, and then they cast the black actor or the queer actor exactly to accompany, and then you get the shit for it. Or if they do something that's somewhat colorblind, like I remember I did um, a very small part in Mary Queen of Scots with um, that Margot Robbie and Saoirse Ronan led, and mm. myself, Adrian Lester, and Gemma Chan were three of the many diverse people in the film, and the amount of Twitter hate that I got appearing in that movie. I mean, I must have had five lines, but I had so many people like in messaging me being like, black people weren't around then. Why are you in this movie? What? I was just like, this is crazy. It's not a documentary, babe. Right. You know? Wow. <laughs> I mean, how, because like you said, there are changes. And I mean, there's, there's, you can see you can see the changes happening on screen, but there for me does always feel sometimes they feel either tokenistic or making a massive statement about the change they're making. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't seem like it's been done for the right reasons. Sometimes, yeah, like a sort of a 
box ticking exercise, a quota of some sort. But do you know what? It is happening because, I mean, I'm writing my own TV show currently. I've, um, I've been commissioned by a brilliant production company. And if the change isn't coming to me, I'm going to come to it, you know? Well, there you go. You create the opportunity. You tell the stories. But, but with that as well, do you find you still then have to get through the gatekeepers? Oh, my God, completely. And the gatekeepers at the top... Completely. It, it's the same people and it's always the same sort of feedback as well. It's just like, oh, we love it. We just, And you, you find yourself having to like sell yourself more and more and more and more and you go, well, why am I having to do this? You either right. want it or you don't. Um, You just sort of feel like you're on this conveyor belt and they go, oh, well, it's your, it's your season now, so we'll pluck you off. And then they put you back on when they want something else. <laughs> it's, yeah. Well, I think after everything that happened with Black Lives Matter, it became, you know, for a lot of these commissioners, like a trend to commission black casts and black shows and queer shows. Mm-hmm. But I read somewhere the other day that Netflix in particular is cancelled. This might not be the hard fact. I should have done my research. <laughs> but I think it's one third of LGBTQ plus shows have been cancelled. And some of these shows are great shows. Mm. So... Why do you think that is? Is it political? Um, do you know what? It's it it's the only reasoning I can think of. Like it it's it's so frustrating because they'll choose one show that they'll propel and it sort of leaves all the other ones at the wayside, meaning they get cancelled. You know, whereas if we think of say detective shows, I can name you ten detective shows <laughs> with ten straight white male leads but queer shows i can probably name you right now what heartstopper which as beautiful and wonderful as it is i'm mid-30s it's not my demographic you know who's catering for the people of our age you know those queer stories and the ones that do get commissioned like looking they give it two seasons and they cancel it you know and they're such such unbelievably rich stories not just about our you know we can tell stories without them being about hiv and aids oh this is another thing as well why has it got to be enshrined in trauma i know it's so frustrating it's because it sort of feeds into that narrative as well of people thinking oh the gays or the it's a hard life it's hard life for anyone babe it's cost of living you know (laughs) (laughs) do you think by being so out and proud, do you think that that's had a negative impact on your career? Um, I refuse to let it have a negative impact. Um, if it has, I've not really been aware of it. It just means that the things that I haven't got weren't meant for me and they've gone elsewhere. And that's completely fine. For me, there was no option of hiding who I am because I'm so proudly queer. It took me so long to become who I am. Why on earth would I want to hide it for the sake of a job or for the sake of other things like I I love the technicolor that I live in as a queer person as a queer black person and no job will ever ever make me silence myself how did you get to that point for me the moment I came out to my parents which was really difficult all fear went because the words were in the world they weren't just living in my head anymore um, I said it, they reacted whatever the way they did. And I was like, well, I'm not dead, <laughs> you know? The, I thought the worst thing was going to happen. I thought it was going to drop dead and my life was going to be over. And it's just words because at the end of the day, I haven't changed. 
you know? So What is it about those words, though? Because they hold so much power. Oh, so you know, much. There's this thing. So much. When I came out uh, back in 1924, uh, <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying here because I never said I am gay aloud because if I verbalize them, it would be real. Mm-hmm. It was like releasing the bats or something, this wild, mad moment. And the minute I said them, it was like someone had let a pressure valve off my entire body, yeah. I, you know, my wrists impl- it, like, instantly, instantly went, limp. Oh. <laughs> and the dip in the hip came. Oh. <laughs> Do you think that those words, because I think there's so much, do we need to come out now? And I think coming out still holds such... It's so, so significant within our community. It right? is. It, it totally is. It's like if 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 someone was to go. I, when I think about like dating in the past, you in the first date that oh how did you come out? It's always like that. Oh, you, you're yeah. if you're meeting um, mutual friends, friends who are queer, and you're in a bar or you're having dinner or something, the coming out conversation always comes up. It's like this thing we we wear as sort of a badge of honor in a way, but also it's like. I think those words, they shackle us. So the moment yeah. we say it, it's like the chains have been broken. So what was your coming out story? Because bearing in mind, you've you know come to the UK, it's glamorous Preston. Oh, De Preston, as I like Ooh, to call it. Huge, huge queer scene oh, there. Yes, <laughs> there was one from from, one club. from the Caribbean, yep. and obviously religious parents. Mm-hmm. There's you know there's so many more layers to you coming out. Uh, it was awful. I, I, can't, I can't even, yeah. there's no other way of ex- explaining it. A very religious family. My dad was an elder in the church. My mum was in the choir. I went, I was at church three times a week, um, all day Saturday. I was raised um, Seventh-day Adventist. From the moment I can sort of remember cognitively of anything, being queer or being gay has always been the most taboo and awful sin that anyone could possibly be. Wow. So f- as a five-year-old child, I remember people's comments about someone else being like, oh, I've heard blah, 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 and it being venomous. And this is from God-loving, God-fearing Christians. So I've, that that has always been around in my mind. I remember my dad one week gave a sermon in church and it was titled GAP, Gap, Gay and Proud, and how disgusting it was and how gross it was. And my little faggot self, uh, I love I love using that word because hey, I've claimed re- it. Yeah, reclaim that word. I use it all the um, time. But my I? little 11-year-old faggy self was sat there fully knowing that I was homosexual. And I've got the person, one of the people I love most in the world, the person who gave me life, my father, on a pulpit in a church in front of a congregation of two, 300 people preaching about how this is the worst possible sin and these people are going to go to hell unless we can help them. So the journey to coming out... What's that to a child? A a child that is forming, you know, is in the formative years and you're you're figuring out who you are and it's scary enough being a child and then you've got this massive secret that is publicly in front of you being ripped apart. Oh, completely. I, I just, I thought like... I literally thought I was going to die if I ever came out. I was like, this is it. My life is over. Like in the lead up to me coming out, I was saving money because I was convinced the moment I say it, they're going to kick me out. Or I'm either going to be on the streets or something, you know, something's going to happen and I, I'm, I'm going to lose my entire family. And 
it ended up not being that way. I told my eldest brother um, the night before, it was the, my 18th birthday, I told him in a nightclub, I was like, I'm gay. And then I ran away from him and then he chased me down the street <laughs> and was like, what are you running away for? I love you, I don't care. Like, it was so sweet. Um, that's the Preston accent there. Um, yes. <laughs> and then... Moscow. The day after, he was like, let's tell mum and dad together. And he came with me. And he wow. actually physically said the words for me. I mean, he didn't do it in the best possible way. He was like, basically, he's gay and left the room. <laughs> um, Thanks, brother. Which was, you know, I wouldn't have changed. I wouldn't have changed it. You know, my parents took it bad, but they came around. But the lead up to that, I mean, between the ages of 10 to 18, ugh, like it was a daily fear. I would pray to God to wake up straight. I'd, I'd mm. be looking at the little old catalogue in the underwear section going, no! <laughs> like, oh. I'd be, you know... Catalogues, hey? The first porn. <laughs> anything, anything that remotely Tanga spared briefs. me during puberty. Straight to the Tanga briefs. It was, yeah, <laughs> it was just like, God, this is, this is awful. But to arrive at where I am now, oh, what a gift. Do you think drama, being, being you know, discovering drama, being a creative kid, mm-hmm. and then being able to act on drama, do you think that that saved you? Absolutely, 100%. I had one teacher, basically, who pushed me down this avenue. Without her, my life would be very different and I might have been living an extremely unhappy life. Um, do, you, do you have a relationship with that teacher? I don't, but I always give her a big shout-out. And, sh- I mean, yeah. the, the last few times I've appeared on stage, she's come to see the shows I've been in. So it's every now and again, we'll pop up and see wow. each other. Um, but her name is Pamela Haywood Connor. And she taught at Walton Dale High School in Preston and she changed my life. See the power of one person, one person believing in you, yeah. one person seeing not only who you are in that moment, but who you could be. Oh, totally. And the thing is- Transform your life forever. Like, I, didn't give her, I didn't give her an easy time either. Like she was persistent. I was like, just leave me alone. I don't want to do drama. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. I got suspended twice. And she was like, I think you need to come to drama to channel your energy. Use all that energy. Yeah. I was like, um, I don't think I do. I think you need to leave me alone. Um, and eventually she just kept going. She kept going and thank God she did. She introduced me to Shakespeare. She introduced me to, like, everything. Wow. Wow. Come on, Pamela. Come on, (laughs) P-Dog. You are the most phenomenal actor. Like, unbelievable. But when you first graduated drama school, I'm guessing there was a level of typecasting. Uh, How did you seek out those roles or how did you not fall into those typecast roles? It was a very conscious um, decision to not do certain things. I think when I signed with my agents, who I'm still currently with, they signed me at drama school and I'm still with them. They're fantastic. One of the first conversations we had was I was like, I'm not playing people who are shanking people on estates. I'm not playing drug dealers. I'm not, because that isn't the narrative I want to perpetuate. But also that isn't the childhood that I had. I didn't see that. I didn't grow up around that. So we actively seeked out roles that weren't that. And Thank God it worked, you know? What's the role that you, today, what's the role that you're most proud of? Gosh, I did a play at the National Theatre called Home, which was 
just the most incredible verbatim piece of theatre. It's where I met... Critically acclaimed, everybody. Critically, critically acclaimed. acclaimed. You ended up doing it two years in a row because... Yeah. Back by popular demand. Um, I met one of my best friends there. I met Michaela Cole doing that play. Um, the cast itself was amazing. It was like myself, Michaela, Ashley Maguire, Antonia wow. Thomas, Danny Sapani, it Gershwin Jr. Uh, it, was, it was amazing. And the play itself, oh man... It was um, it was a really tough piece. So verbatim, it's all, I'm always so intrigued by this. You have an earpiece in. Well, correct? we didn't. We had to do it all oh. via. So you have to memorize, but it's it's about all the, the specificity. Talk, talk me through it. I want to so, know because I don't think a lot of people know what verbatim theater so is. So the play was called Home, and it was based on a series of interviews that our director Nadia Fall she went into a hostel in Stratford in East London with a recording device and just said to people, what is your idea of home? So the whole play was formed from these interviews and every breath, every stop, every single intonation that was on the interview tapes based on who we we were listening to or who we were playing was as it was when it was recorded. That's impressive. When I tell you it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. That's not a like rock up, just say the words, is oh, it? Oh no. You have to be in it. I believe they call it acting. Yeah. It, 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 <laughs> those words like literally went round in my head. I used, to, I used to sleep with the interviews playing in the background just so I, it was just, Whoa. it was just going in for weeks and weeks and weeks. What would be your ideal role? Because, you know, you played a lot of great roles, mm-hmm. a lot of great roles, but I would love to see you playing, you know, I know the, the world that you inhabit. Mm-hmm. I know that you're the big screaming queen. <laughs> you know, the <laughs> real me. And the little mix gig that's <laughs> tearing it Literally. up. Literally, oh my God. What dream role, no shits given, what would you play? Do you know what? I really, really want to play like an incredible flamboyant queer role. I very rarely get cast as queer and stuff, which I find really hard to sort of digest because um, I just... It's part of who I am. I'd love to, um, you know, I'm grateful for the roles I play. Do not get me wrong. But I would love to play a wonderfully queer role, front and centre. Perhaps a drag queen, because we are, you know, they're an endangered species. I was hoping you would say that. I was leading you to this place. (laughs) (laughs) Just call me Parkinson. I'd love to play like a big old, yeah, big old drag queen. If they were to say do Kinky Boots, the musical, as a film. Right, Yes. Oh, you'd be great. I'm your girl. Just call me Lola. How do you feel about, there's always stuff in the media about this, but about straight actors playing gay roles, queer roles. Mm-hmm. How do I feel about How it? How do you feel about it? Um, I think if the, if the, <sighs> hmm, if the arena was even, it would be easy to say everyone should play everything. I think the scales have been tipped in one favour for so long that we need to even things out. And you look at something like It's a Sin, right? You had a cast of relatively new, but openly queer actors. And look at what they brought to those roles because they had something to really, they had something to go from. They had their own experiences to pour into those roles. I like seeing that. I also think straight actors, some of the best on-screen performances by straight actors playing queer you know, Oscar-winning performances are amazing. Don't get me wrong, but we've got more work to do. So 
Let the fags have the roles. New merch line. I see it. <laughs> Let them fags have the roles. <laughs> Obviously, you're at a point now where, I'm, and also you're very statuesque and gorgeous and all of those things. And I'm, I'm guessing you're beginning, or you, not beginning, darling. I've been recognised for a long time, <laughs> but people are recognising you now for your work on the street, yeah, yeah, on the yeah. tubes. Now and again, which is interesting. And I, I just think like being in the public eye is tough, but being in a public relationship as a gay man, I think, is he must be even tougher. How do you keep it private and still live, you know, still live your life to the fullest? Well, I by not talking about it, <laughs> by keeping it ours. Because what I do as a career, what we do is so front-facing and people have access to so much of it because it is front-facing that the joy and the love and the relationships that I have in my life, I like to keep for myself. Listen, what what are you watching at the moment? Um, what's the, what, um, what's the great piece of TV or theatre that you've been to watch that's, oh, that's amazing theater. and powerful? I've seen some really great stuff recently. I went to see The Motive in the Queue at the National Theatre with the wonderful Mark Gatiss. Ah, wait, he's one of my favourite of you all have time. To see. He's, he's like one of my mentors. He's a wonderful, wonderful friend, but he's become one of my mentors. He was the, one of the first people that got me into writing, actually. He's fantastic. You have to go see the play. And he's playing openly queer actor, director, John Gielgud. You know, mm. in a time where that being openly queer was not fashionable. Um, I think his career, Mark Gatiss, is is so interesting. Mm -hmm. It's so brilliantly considered. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not there publicly lording it around. And yet, if you look at his choices from comedy to the serious stuff. Mm. I mean, he played Glenn Bulb in 99. I mean, which is one of the best. It's, it's just unbelievable. And I think that that, when you look at that, you realise that you can actually just have a career based on the work. Exactly that. That that I love to hear. And I'd say, go see that Motive in the Queue at the National Theatre. Um, I saw, for black boys who contemplate suicide when the hue gets too much in the West End, that was phenomenal. Did you watch Black Superhero? Did you go and watch that? I didn't go to see that, no. I really enjoyed it. The dialogue was brilliant and laugh out loud funny uh, in spots. The, the, such a gay thing of me to say. The set was quite the sensation. <laughs> you know, because I also, there's something about that theatre because you're down in High Street Ken mm. and they're doing really interesting things. You know, they put on the Travis Alabanza show mm -hmm. last I think the time before Sound of the Underground, which yes. you know, ends with a massive queer girls allowed song. And you're like, we're, we're, we're Stone's Throw from Chelsea. So I kind of, I always like those um, challenging pieces of theatre in, in an establishment that feels quite stuffy yeah, and traditional. Yeah, I think it's incredible. Wasn't it the Young Vic? They held a ball, like a voguing yes. ball. And apparently it was the most incredible evening and the incredible you night. You can't keep us queers out of anywhere. We will find where the fun is. We will sashay. Even if there's no fun, we will, we will create it. <laughs> We will duck walk our way into the, into the theatre. I remember a conversation I had years and years ago with Jodie Harsh, right at the beginning of my career. And she, she kept telling me, she was like, oh, you just need to get in with the gay mafia. Do you feel like that exists within the world of acting? Oh, absolutely. Because I, yeah, I see it. That's why I'm, you know, I see <laughs> that, you know, dancers hang with dancers, actors hang with actors. <laughs> yeah. There's, and so who have those, who have those been for you you know who, who's who's been in your mafia mark gatus yeah um he's wonderful um actually um andrew scott's a good friend of mine as well a good guy wonderful really good wonderful guy. guy 
wonderful, wonderful guy. Actually, I've got a couple of non-queer people in my gay mafia, like Michaela. You what? <laughs> Heaven forbid. She's a, she's an honorary queer, you know? <laughs> and Ashling B. Ashling B. Amazing. Yeah, I've, it does, it always interests me though, because it's the same with, I think, a lot of creative industries that you, especially when you're all on the way up, mm. you you build this little army, this power in numbers. The drag queens do it. The club promoters do it's it. It's true. I think especially as marginalised people within these industries, uh-huh. like you need to find your community, right? Oh, totally. Like, for instance, like Leighton Williams and Amari Douglas are two of my best friends. And the three of us were like this little microcosm that go everywhere. And we're just, we were having a conversation not so long ago going, wow, we've got three black queer men operating in three different parts of the industry, all actors, but we've been given various yeah. things within it and we're getting to show different ranges within it. And it's just a, such a beautiful thing. Who's Kelly? Who's Michelle? Who's Beyonce? Um, I'll let you decide. I know who Beyonce, uh, I know who thinks they're Beyonce. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she may or may not have been on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Right, final question I need to ask. I like to ask this to people. What is on your rider? What is on my rider? Are you a diva? Um, No. There's a but. I do like... Diamonds. I do like the rooms that I walk into to smell nice. So a nice diptyque candle in there or a nice, you know, a nice diffuser from the white company or something. It's, it's exactly what Jake Shears stop said. It. You don't want to walk into a room and have a soggy bit of brie. My nose is so sensitive. I smell everything. Everything. So I, I, I like to... It's like, you know... Like, for me, the worst smell in the world is, like, damp clothing, like Faust. Oh, my God, yes! <laughs> I get the worst paranoia about it's it. The- you know, you'll leave the house. And I've, I've, I've been late for meetings before because all of a sudden I think... I can smell mold. <laughs> I can smell that horrible mold. And it's also, it makes me think, the early sink the pinks, by the way, could you always smell of that because it would be like full of students. So as long as I can avoid that smell anywhere I go, that's, that's what's on my rider. Anything nice smelling to make the room smell beautiful. Bit of potpourri. Get her bit of potpourri. Bit of pop. Well, it's been a joy. Thank you so much for bloody having me. Can I just say how much I appreciate you and everything that you do? You operate in so many spaces and every time I see you, it's an absolute joy. I'm just so <laughs> thrilled that you exist and that Stop you it, use your you? power to help other people. Honestly, Glenn, you're an absolute diamond of the queer community. I've had a big week this week and I'm feeling very emotional about everything. I will bore. Well, so you should. You're gorgeous, human. Thank you so oh, much. Well, I love you. I love you too. I'm really grateful. Now go and take over the world, yeah? Oh, you betcha. We'll do it together. <laughs>